handing out copies of our notes for this session, and those notes may spill in the next week. We'll So anybody need, we've got guys on the ends and in the middle. If you need a copy of the notes, get their attention. Looks like you did great work, guys. Thank you very much. All right, well, welcome to the first week of this series, as you see on the screen, titled Identity Crisis. Who does God say that I really am? Now, why is that a series that we think would be timely? Well, it's because there are lots of things happening in our culture and in our day that suggest, scream really, that people are having a very difficult time identifying who they are uh, as individuals and generally as, as humanity. But that's not, and I'll give some ways in which that's happening as we go through our series, but it's not new. Uh, and it's not new as you'll see in the lyrics of a couple of songs that I'm going to quote to you. Now, my songs are always old, so only some of you will, have, will know what these are. But uh, the first one is She Loves Me Like a Rock. You guys remember, some of you remember that song? But it goes like this, when I was a little boy and the devil would call my name, he'd say, now, who do, who do you think you're fooling? I'm a consecrated boy. I'm a singer in a Sunday choir, and my mama loves me. She loves me. She gets down her knees and hugs me. She loves me like a rock. Some of you remember that. Now, have you ever thought about it? I mean, we, we listen to those things. What, what is that about? What's that dialogue about? Well, it's about, you know, a kid being challenged on, on who you are. And the way I know who I am is because I'm connected, the idea is, to someone that I know loves me, someone that anchors my life. My mama, she, she loves me. She loves me like a rock. But when I was grown to be a man, and the devil would call my name, who do, who do you think you're, you're fooling? I'm a consummated man. I can snatch a little purity. Notice, I can snatch a little purity. Now it's, you know, not so confident, but still, my mama loves me. And she gets down on her knees and she hugs me. And if I was the president and the members of Congress were to call my name, I'd say, now, who do, who do you think you're fooling? I've got the presidential seal and the presidential podium, and yep, my mama still loves me too. All of that is attaching who you are in the face of questions about that to someone that stabilizes it. That's the idea. And so it's the presidential seal, or it's my mom, Here's another one from those great theologians, Supertramp. And they say, when I was young, it seemed life was so wonderful, a miracle. It was beautiful, magical. All the birds in the trees, they'd be singing so happily, joyfully, playfully watching me. But then they send me away to teach me how to be sensible, logical, oh, responsible, practical. And they showed me a world where I could, where I could be so dependable, clinical, intellectual, cynical. And there are times when all the world's asleep, the questions run too deep for such a simple man. Won't you please, please tell me what we've learned? I know it sounds absurd. Please tell me who I am. So these questions that are going on now in our culture are not new. They've been going on for a long time in my now long lifetime. And they were going on many centuries 
before that. And so we have started this series then, Identity Crisis. Who does God really say that I am? And in your notes, everyone should have a copy of the notes. If you'll take a look at the top, we ask that question, who does God say that I really am? And I say at the top there, there are many ways to be lost. For example, we are geographically lost when we're in an unknown place without a map or GPS to provide our location. Okay, so we're just directionally lost. Now, some of you have heard me tell this story about my family being lost several years ago when we were homeschooling our girls. And one of the great advantages to homeschooling is that you can kind of set your own schedule. And my day off in my pastoring work has been for years Monday. And since we were homeschooling, we would take Mondays as a family when the girls were little. And we would go to places where there was nobody else. And so we would have the run of the place. And one fall, we went to an apple orchard but it was at the end of the season, and they had one of those corn maze, uh, mazes set up, but now it was, it was closed for the season. They just hadn't torn it down yet. And in any case, on Monday, a lot of stuff was not operating at full capacity. So, you know, we go in there, and some of the stuff was open, but there's the corn maze. And if you know my two daughters, they're completely different. The older one, Lainey, who sings, she's like her mother. She's a rule keeper. If you say you can't do it, then you can't do it. And Annie, unfortunately, is like me. If you say you can't do it, there's got to be a loophole. <laughs> really? So we go and we see the sign to the entrance to the, the corn maze, and it says closed. And so for Kim and Laney, that means you can't go in. And for me and Annie, influenced by me, it was... Does it mean you can't go in, or does it just mean it's not supervised right now? <laughs> I can go in. And Annie's with me, yeah, let's go in. And so we go in, and Kim and Laney are standing about 30 yards away from the entrance, and we go into the straightaway in this thing, and before we make the first turn, we turn around to look, you guys are going to come, and they look at each other, and they finally throw their hands up, and they run into the maze with us. So now the four of us, and I have now corrupted my entire family, are in this maze, and we start going, and I'm just thinking, this is the greatest thing. It was a beautiful day, and we're just going around through the thing. And we were going around through it for about 15 minutes, and I realized we really do have no idea how to get out of here. That's okay. We got a cell phone. So if I have to, I'll break down and admit to the people who run the place. I'll call them. I'll say, we're in here. Come and get us. And so I go to look at my phone, there's no cell service. None. All right, but we're going to get out of here. We go for another 10 minutes, and we still have no clue how to get out of this. Thing. And then I hear something on the outside that sounds like a huge piece of machinery. It's a combine. And now I'm starting to panic. They're going to tear this thing down, and we're in here. And the headlines are going to read, Pastor and Family Perish, <laughs> as they break the rules going into this corn, this corn maze. And I'm saying to Kim, uh, without getting the, letting the girls know, hey, I don't know how to get out of here, and I think that's a combine out there, and what are we going to do? And she's kind of freaking out too. And so we just run through the corn, away from the sound of the combine, 
no pathway, making our own pathway <laughs> until we finally hit daylight. And I'm here to tell the story. That's what I mean, though. You're lost when you're in an unknown place without a map or a GPS to provide location. But then we are psychologically lost when we're in an unfamiliar situation without a frame of reference to process that situation. There are lots of ways, but one of the ways that we experience this is when we have pressure placed on us by the expectations of other people. It can make us psychologically lost in terms of the comparison between ourselves and these people that we're allowing, frankly, to put pressure on us. We're asking the question, do I measure up? And this is why school can be so difficult. Something that should be a wonderful experience can actually be difficult, quite difficult. And kids go through all kinds of difficulty because they're now in an environment where they're not just in the cocoon of home where they're unconditionally loved and accepted, but now they're in the presence of other people where they're comparing themselves to other people. And of course, we know that Kids can be cruel. And so you not only find that you don't measure up in a lot of ways, but people will make sure you know you don't measure up. The teasing and the bullying. Body image. Things that are said in the locker room. Determining who's hot and who's not. And you get that idea. I either measure up or I don't measure up. I fit kind of in the middle. I'm in the top third. I'm down at the bottom. Nobody ever wants to really hang around with me. And so I'm in a situation now that I'm, I'm having a hard time with a frame of reference because my frame of reference is what all these people think about me. So it has a psychological effect on me. And then I say we are ontologically lost. When we're unmoored, unanchored from our identity without an authority to establish it. Now, ontological is not a word that most of us use very often, but it has to do with being, existence. And so we're lost in terms of our, our own being, our own existence, when we are disconnected from our identity without an authority that we trust to establish or reestablish it. So there is, in philosophy, there's an argument called the ontological argument for the existence of God. It's the argument from, from being, but that's what that's about. So I say in the second paragraph, when we're lost geographically, we're asking, where am I? When we're lost psychologically, we ask, how am I? How am I, as an individual, as a person, compared to this situation I'm, I'm in, for example. But when we're lost ontologically, we ask, who am I? And of the three, ontological confusion is the most serious because knowing who we are is foundational to everything else, to all that we think and all that we do. And this is why confusion about identity leads to so many moral and ethical problems and challenges. So here we live in a day and in a culture where it's wide open as to who we are. And we're defining our own identity 
And we're not, we don't have, we've disconnected ourselves from an authority to establish or reestablish that identity. And so you have things that you just never have thought could happen happening. So just this past June, the American Medical Association says, I'm quoting now from an article on this, sex should be removed as a legal designation on the public part of birth certificates, according to the American Medical Association. So this is one of the things that happens when you are, as I say, unmoored from your identity without a, an authority to establish or reestablish. And therefore, last sentence of that second paragraph, it's imperative that we move from identity crisis to identity confidence. The best thing that you can do for your child, for your teenager, for your young adult, for yourself, is to establish absolutely who I am. And I know rock solid who I am, and nothing can change that. And I know not only who I am, but as we're going to see as we go through these notes, I know whose I am. And therefore, rather than elevating the opinion of other people about me, and having this psychological problem, because I don't have this frame of reference because I'm allowing others to create that frame of reference, rather than that happening now, come what may, come what they say, I still know who I am. It's the best thing you can possibly do for your children and for yourself. How we see ourselves, third paragraph, will profoundly affect the way we live. A low self-image will keep us from being all that we can be. An inflated self-image will set us up for disappointment. But our Creator knows us better than we know ourselves. And He's got a guidebook for life, the Bible. He gives us an accurate self-image regarding our nature, our abilities, our flaws, our gender, and more, so that we can see who we are and become what we were made to be. So how do I get to that? How do you get to that? Well, I recommend that you follow Dorothy's instructions. It's always best to start at the beginning. And I remind you that the Christian worldview begins, ends, and centers on the true and living God, that all of life is to be viewed through a God-centered lens as seen in the very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning God. Let me stop there for a second. But Have you ever pondered that? The Bible just starts in the beginning God. The idea is supposed to be now from that moment on, Everything else is to be seen in reference to God. But when you lose that anchor, when you're unmoored from that, and now you're seeing yourself and you're seeing others and you're seeing the value of yourself and others and of your life in connection with something other than God, now it's up for grabs. Now it can be anything. And we're seeing in our day that it is. The opening chapters of Scripture are foundational to all that follows because they place the universe in general and humanity in particular in relation to Him. So, guys and gals, friends, go back to the beginning. In the beginning, God. Who am I in relation to God? And here's who you are in relation to God. You're special. Now you say, wow, Pastor, I've never heard you talk such psychobabble. I've never heard you talk, I'm okay, you're okay. 
actually heard a lot of sin and fallenness and misery and, you know, future punishment and damnation and all of that. What happened to you? Well, a few pages later, I get into all the misery and all that, okay? So, but really, the Bible starts not there. The Bible starts here. You're special. And if we're going to see ourselves as who we really are, then we've got to start where the Bible starts, in relation to God, and it's in relation to God that we see that, in fact, we are special. So let's remind ourselves of that. Of the six days of creation week, the final one, the sixth day, stands out because it was on day six that God made his highest earthly creature. The creation account climaxes with a description of the first man and woman as unique from all else that God made. On the first five days, God spoke in the same way as he brought his world into existence. It's over and over in the first chapter of the Bible, and God said, let there be light. God said, let there be a vault between the waters. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place. And God said, let the land produce vegetation. And God said, and God said, and God said. And then bottom of that page, and suddenly this cadence marked by these words, and God said, is broken. Verse 28 of Genesis chapter 1, and God said, but this time, to them. So now you have not only God speaking, but He's speaking to one of His creatures, namely humanity. And the context tells us why God communicated to humanity in a way different from the rest of creation. The verse just before that one that says He spoke to them says, God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them, male and female, He created them. And the uniqueness of these image bearers is underscored from chapter, with chapter 2 of Genesis, being devoted to an elaboration of just that one day, which describes the creation of Adam in chapter 2, the work that God assigned him to do, the warning and the opportunity that God placed before him, the woman God made to aid him, the joy and intimacy that Adam and Eve had for and with one another. And though God had pronounced all of His work good on all of those other days, you see that, those references, He applied the description very good only after day six. The image bearers were created. Now, the Latin term for this image of God is imago Dei, and I use it in that next paragraph. We learn something of what the imago Dei means from the particular words that are used for it in Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So an image is a representation. The God who is spirit creates a representative in physical form. So this is what one scholar says. Just as an ancient king would place an image of himself in an area of his realm to show his sovereignty, God makes man in his image to represent him in the newly created world. Thus, image has kingship implications. Yet in this case, those representations are living, breathing human beings, not lifeless statues. While God is the king, he created man as a king, a vice regent, and a mediator over the creation. And the term likeness indicates man is in relationship with God. He's a son of God. Because man is a son of God, he's able to represent God, so sonship is closely connected to rulership. Well, all right, now let's just... <laughs> okay, well, now we're talking. Who am I? Who are you? We're all that, says the Bible. 
And we're given not just a nature that's connected to God and represents God's image and represents God in His world through His image and likeness, but middle of that page, the assignment that humanity received in Adam was to serve as God's vice regents on earth. Adam was told, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. We call that the dominion mandate. And it was given by the king of creation to all humanity. That is, this mandate was not required of Adam and Eve alone, but rather as they are fruitful and they increase in number and they fill the earth, it's to be taken up by their posterity now. The Hebrew word for rule in Genesis 1.28, it's the same one used in Psalm 110 and verse 2 of the future reign of the Messiah. Just ponder that. Same word used for the creation of humanity to represent and rule on God's behalf as is used in Psalm 110 for the future coming Messiah. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. And the word subdue speaks of the work of a a king. Michael Vlock, that I quoted earlier, summarizes well this connection between the Imago Dei and dominion. This relationship between the image of God and ruling over creation is so close that some have concluded that the image of God is the function of ruling. But the function of ruling is probably a consequence of man being made in the image. The main point is that God's image bearer, man is God's image bearer, created to rule the earth on God's behalf. Hard to get much more special than that, it would seem to me. You're special. You were made that way. I was made that way. Humanity was made that way. Given that. Now, before we move on, you see at the bottom of that page, you're not so special. So before we move on to that, I read an article recently that says uh, why the biblical answer to humanity is revolutionary. And it says the Christian answer to the question, what does it mean to be human, is different from the answer you get from atheistic naturalism, Eastern pantheism, from the postmodern philosophy that's currently characterizing life here in the West. The biblical answer to what it means to be human is revolutionary. God created everything and called everything good. And then he put man and woman on the earth to rule over it as his image bearers, to represent him and his will to the rest of the created order. The significance of this cannot be overstated. First, they say, this idea has fundamentally changed the world. It's fundamentally changed the world about people who were oppressed. Because those people are not unequal. That, in the words of our Declaration of Independence, that... We are all endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights, and among these, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so it's changed the way humanity thought about people who were oppressed. It changed the way we thought about the other. And I would just say to you, Christian friend, if you name the name of Jesus, the way you look at people that look different than you, the way you look at people that live in other countries or lived in other countries and are in this country should be shaped by your biblical worldview. How do I view people? Made in the image of God. Radical reordering of the way we see one another. It's changed law, it's changed politics, it's changed the courts, it's changed education. And the image of God, they go on to say, 
is crucial to an understanding of the Christian worldview. The Christian story is given to us, as I was talking about a bit this morning in our first hour, in the form of a story, a narrative. And it takes us from the account of creation all the way to the account of the new creation, and from the heavens and the earth to the new heavens and the new earth. And at the heart of all of that is humanity made in the image of God, and we're going to see restored to the image of God. You're special. This idea of the image of God is revolutionary. But the Bible's worldview goes on, Christian worldview, to tell the truth about who we are in another respect, and that is, bottom of the next page, you're not so special. Because Adam's authority, like all creaturely authority, is derivative and it's circumscribed by the God who delegated it. After placing Adam in the Garden of Eden to, quote, work it and take care of it, the Lord says to him, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. One author has said, people often wonder why God put the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden. The reason is that the tree reminded Adam and Eve that their authority to rule and subdue was not absolute. Look, I'm letting you represent God, but you're not God. And don't ever forget that. If you're going to have your identity maintained properly, then you're always going to have to have that identity in relation to me, in the beginning God. And so you're a creature, I'm the creator. Your authority is delegated from the ultimate authority, and that would be me. And so God is reminding them of that. But the middle of that paragraph, our first parents deliberately chose to subvert God's rule for their own rules, succumbing to the tempter's enticement, you will be like God. In doing so, they introduced to earth the worship disorder that had already affected heaven. You see, what you read about in Genesis chapter 3, where many of you know the story, and Eve has a dialogue with the serpent who is animated by Satan. He's called later in Scripture that ancient serpent, the devil. And so this is Satan animating this animal, speaking to Eve, tempting her to be like God. She succumbs. Adam succumbs as, as well. But when they do that, they're committing. What's happening in Genesis chapter 3 is the first human sin. But not the first sin. Because Satan has already committed sin. And that's why I say it the way I do there. When they do that, they've introduced to earth the worship disorder that had already affected heaven. And Lucifer had the same idea. I'll be like God, and now tempts humanity with the same. This is a worship disorder. It is a, a, a distortion. Rather than in the beginning God, now it's in the beginning me. Next paragraph, the worship disorder was manifested in the garden as it is now by an exchange of the worship of the Creator in favor of the creature. Romans chapter 1 says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. The serpent was served rather than the God who created the serpent. 
the fruit was more pleasing than the promises of the God who provided the fruit. Their own self-centered freedom was more desirable than dependence on the God who offered himself to be enjoyed forever. So that's what happens. You've got a worship disorder now. And every human being who comes into the world now, all of Adam and Eve's children, all come into the world with this worship disorder. This vertical disorder has profound horizontal effects, alienating humans from one another and the creation from itself. So why does a kid go to school and get harassed? Because of this. Because the vertical has affected the horizontal. And now our relationships with one another, not first starting with God, but now with one another, are disordered as well. It has profound horizontal effects, alienating humans from one another and from the creation itself. The horizontal relational effects were seen immediately after the first human sin. Adam, and Eve, Adam blames Eve, she blames the serpent, and both of them suggested that ultimately it's God's fault since Adam said, it's the woman you put here with me and the serpent that you created. So whose fault is this? So in the beginning, God. Uh, not so much. Now it's me, and it's not only me at the center. I'm dethroning you. It's your fault. We say blasphemously, blasphemously to God. The created world, which was given for humanity's care and enjoyment, is now going to make work more difficult as nature groans under the curse and awaits its future restoration, the Bible teaches in both the Old and New Testaments. The fall. We call it the fall. But do not make no mistake, friends. When we talk about, you know, if I, if I walk around here and I trip and I fall, it's an accident. So don't think that when we talk about the fall, we're implying anything that was accidental. This was a deliberate shaking of the fist in the face of Almighty God, committed by humanity, by our perfect representative of humanity. So if you think you would have done better, then you're also saying, God, you picked the wrong representative. God picked the perfect representative to perfectly represent you and represent me. This is then us. And so it results now, the fall, this deliberate usurping of God's authority results in both an abdication and a distortion. We now abdicate what God placed us here to do, which was to rule on His behalf and represent Him. We're abdicating that now. And we're now distorting everything, distorting our view of God and our view of one another. God's viceroy now became his enemy. As Satan was cast down, humanity is cast out, resulting in separation from God, mutual hostility between God and his creatures. Not only has humanity's position been forfeited, our nature's been altered. In particular, the image of God that made humanity fit for relationship with Him and able to rule on His behalf has now been distorted such that we no longer accurately represent God. Our new allegiance is clearly seen immediately, Genesis chapter 4, as Cain attacks and murders a fellow image bearer, thereby demonstrating fealty to our newly enthroned God of this world. Jesus said, He, Satan, was a murderer from the beginning. Here we go. And here we are. You're special. 
You're not so special. That's the truth about our identity. It's connected to God, always. And it's either connected to God properly or it's connected to God improperly. Sin has caused it to be connected improperly so that everyone comes into the world in this estranged condition from God. Here's the flicker of good news, and then the good news will get better as I go. Bottom of that page, though the image has been effaced, it's not entirely erased. The command, for example, for capital punishment in the Bible for murder in Genesis chapter 9 is based on the fact that it says there, in the image of God has God made mankind. What's significant about that is Genesis 9 is after Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is when humanity fell, sinned. But even after that, hundreds of years after that, in the lifetime of Noah in Genesis chapter 9, God speaks of humanity still made in the image of God. The image still exists, but in diminished capacity, centuries after the fall. But in fact, the Imago Dei in humanity has been drastically altered and we see that in the fact that it must now be restored. So theologian Sinclair Ferguson says, In our sin we have fallen short of the glory of God. Paul's language in Romans 3 is loaded with the biblical motif of the divine image. In Scripture, image and glory are interrelated ideas. As the image of God, man was created to reflect, express, and participate in the glory of God in miniature, creaturely form. Restoration to this is effected through the Spirit's work of sanctification in which He takes those who have distorted God's image in the shame of sin and He transforms them into those who bear that image in glory. That's what it means to become, as 2 Peter 1 says, partakers of the divine nature. In creation, God gave an orientation to His highest creature. This is who I am, this is who you are, this is our orientation. Your orientation to my world. This is why, why I placed you here, this is what you're to do, this is the circumscribed structure in which you can operate. God gave an orientation. But the fall resulted in disorientation. So life is not completely gone. You have beautiful aspects of God's beautifully created world. But have you ever thought about this, friends? As beautiful as aspects of creation are, we literally ain't seen nothing yet. Have you ever considered that? Because it's going to be restored to the way it was. See, what it is now is groaning under the curse. Even the beauty of the creation is still a diminished beauty that will be spectacular beyond our imagination when it is restored, and it will be restored. So now a reorientation is required, a reorientation of humanity as persons, as individuals, a reorientation of the created order. Thankfully, though we have failed the test of the garden, probation. Because that's what our first parents were. God put them there. He made sure to circumscribe their authority so that they knew who was ultimately in charge. He gives them this one command and gives them 
a probationary test to see if they will pass that. They, we, fail miserably. Despite that, God is graciously moving His restoration program forward. So, how does He do that? How does He move the restoration program forward? You're special. You're not so special. (laughs) Well, the top third of that next page, it's who you know. In the midst of the judgments that God levied against the participants in the fall, God graciously issued a marvelous note of hope in what's called the Proto-Evangelium of Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, God is talking to the serpent now, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head, you will strike his heel. That's in the midst of this first human sin. And God is meeting out judgments to the man. He says, by the sweat of your brow, you're now going to make your living. The the ground is going to produce thorns, making it difficult for you to do the work that I assigned to you. To the woman, you are going to have consequences. Pain in childbirth is one of those. But to the serpent, he says, you're going to crawl on your, your belly. But here's what's most important. There's going to become a few, there's going to be a future battle. Because the answer to this problem of the entrance of sin into God's otherwise good world is going to come through the seed of the woman, through a human being. And he's going to crush your head. Now, back, uh, how long has it been? 04, I think, when the Passion movie came out. And I don't know if you remember, but you know Jesus is in the garden and he's agonizing in the garden, and it's before he goes to the cross. And he's praying, and he's, he's sweating, and he's dreading. And a snake sli- slithers. And one of the great cinematic things they did with that was Jesus rises from praying, and he steps on the head of the snake, and it makes this loud. I remember watching that in a theater, and it just reverberated throughout the theater, crushing your head. That was the imagery. And that crushing of the head took place when Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty, to begin the restoration, the full restoration of which is yet future. But it was promised in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. He, the seed of the woman, this human being that's going to come, is going to crush your head, though you will strike his heel. Yes, you will crucify him on the cross. But only because we're allowing that and doing it for our, that is God's purposes. God's purpose in creation, in the fall, in redemption, has been stated well by my theology professor, the late Dr. Roland McCune. He said God's ultimate purpose and the unifying principle of his activity is to glorify himself by establishing a rule of loving sovereignty and fellowship with human beings in his image and dwelling with them forever. Restoration of the divine image is required because God is intent on receiving glory in his world. That is, since God will be glorified and since God's image and glory are interrelated, as we saw at the top of the page, then it follows that this image of God, this Imago Dei, must and will be restored. Therefore, in tracing God's pursuit of His glory and redemptive history, we have to, of necessity, see this restoration of His image in humanity. 
In other words, the chief end of man to glorify God cannot be ultimately accomplished until the image of God is fully restored. I'm going to talk about how that happens next week. But now, for now, I want to read for you something that Paul Tripp, some of you know who Paul Tripp is. He's written a number of books. We have a number of them in our resource center. He's a, a biblical counselor. And he says something that I found quite helpful about this issue of our identity and the restoration of that identity in Christ. He says this, I've searched for identity in my successes, but my failures get in the way. I've looked for identity in my possessions, but they age, break, and malfunction. I've sought identity in people, but everyone is flawed somehow. I've searched for identity in ministry, but the spirit gets in the way. I've reached for identity in knowledge, but I never know enough. I've gotten my identity from my strength, but my weakness took it away. I've taken identity from my abilities, but inability stole it from me. There is no place, no person, no experience, no success, no possession, no skill, no level of knowledge that can impart the security of identity, the rest of meaning and purpose that everyone desires. So I've quit looking out and begun looking up. In you, as he looks up, I am loved. I am forgiven. I have eternal value. I have meaning and purpose. I have security and rest. I have understanding. I have moral direction. I have self-knowledge. I have peace of heart. You are in me. I am in you. This bond is enough. This bond is life, and it cannot be broken. And then he quotes Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, I don't think that we talk about this enough. I don't think that we celebrate this reality enough. I don't think we let our hearts consider the wonder of this identity enough. It's so amazing that it defies all standard human logic and intuition. It's the spiritual miracle of miracles that becomes the defining identity of all of God's blood-bought children by grace. Amazingly, we are forgiven and accepted by God, by grace and grace alone. There's nothing natural about this. We instinctively think that we have to work our way into God's favor and earn our way into His presence, but the biblical story is anything but natural. It's the story of rebels who not only don't desire a relationship with God, but who could not possibly earn it even if they did. This is the story of divine intervention, of divine substitution, of divine sacrifice, of divine grace. It's a story of God sending His Son to live as we were meant to live, to die the death that each of us deserves, to satisfy God's righteous requirement and placate His anger, and to rise out of the grave, conquering sin and death. It's a story of incredible patience, and tenderness and compassion and love and mercy and grace, forgiveness granted, acceptance secured, and righteousness given to those who could not have merited them on their own. It is far better than any too-good-to-be-true story. Since this is true, why would you search for identity anywhere else? And that's what we want to try to drive home. Next week, we'll continue these notes, so... Bring them back if you remember. If you don't, five bucks, we'll give you some more. 
We'll have more next week, but we'll continue those notes. And then in the weeks ahead, we want to see the implications then, practical implications of what this identity that God offers in Christ has for us as we live day to day, all right? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the blessings of this day, the Lord's day. Thank you that we could worship you in song, that we could return to you a portion of what you've entrusted to us to carry out your work in your world, that we could pray to you as your people in solidarity, that we could hear from your word. And now, Lord, to rehearse what you have said about your original design and how it has been distorted, but how you are restoring what has been broken. Thank you for this time. I thank you for these brothers and sisters, and I ask you to go with each of us now as we seek to represent you accurately in the assignments that you've given to each of us. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.